Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at The Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and The Wall Street Journal, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Damon Linker had a death in the family this week, and we send him our sincerest condolences. Sitting in for him today is The Bulwark's own Bill Crystal. Our special guest this week is Steve Laddick, professor at the University of Texas School of Law and prolific commentator, podcaster, and blogger on all things legal, and apparently also on parenting, which is an aspect of his work that I wasn't familiar with and will have to learn more about. But thank you, one and all, for being here. We're going to uh, address a lot of issues today because we're going to touch upon the um, Supreme Court term, the problems of Herschel Walker in Georgia, and the tricky concept of the independent state legislature doctrine. So lots to get to. Let's start with the Supreme Court. This term, as if last term wasn't eventful enough, this term, the court is set to consider some free speech issues. They are set to look at affirmative action They are going to consider, as I mentioned, the Independent State Legislature Doctrine, the Indian Child Welfare Act, and whether it violates the Equal Protection Clause, and an Alabama redistricting case just to get going. So let us begin with the case that was brought by a group of Asian Americans who claim that Harvard discriminates against Asian Americans with its admission policies. So they they point to lots of data, for example, the fact that um, since the 1990s, the share of Asians in Harvard's freshman class has remained stable, but the percentage of Asians in the U.S. population has more than doubled. And a 2009 Princeton study showed that Asians had to score 140 points higher on the SAT than whites to have the same chance of admission to top universities. Linda, I'm going to start with you. I don't think that anybody disputes that affirmative action leads to some unjust outcomes. I guess the question will be, is the Supreme Court, has it come to the point that Sandra Day O'Connor predicted 20 years ago that it's outrun its benefits at this stage? Well, um, as you know, one of the many hats that I wear is I am chair of the Center for Equal Opportunity, which is a right of center think tank that deals with issues of race. And we have uh, studied uh, racial preferences in college admissions for the last 25 years. And what we find is a pattern in practice of giving weight to race and not just a, you know, pinky on the scale, as it were, deciding between two or more or less equally qualified candidates. But most universities that we've studied give hefty preference, uh, first and foremost to black students, a little bit less preference, but still some preference to Hispanic students. And it's very difficult to know what's done for Native Americans because the numbers are so small that it's difficult to get the data and do a meaningful analysis. But what we have also found is that these preferences do not just give advantages to black and brown students. They have tremendous disadvantages 
for Asian students. And we did a report on Harvard's practices. And it was actually, uh, we titled it Harvard Investigates Harvard, because in fact, what we looked at was the university's own Office of Institutional Research, which took a look at this issue and whether or not the school was discriminating against Asian students. And what we found and what OIR found, uh, more importantly, was that the university went to extraordinary lengths to try to keep down the number of Asian students admitted. And the rationale was that in order to have a diverse student body with all different types of people represented, if it was simply a meritocratic admission standards where grades and test scores were the primary consideration, then the school would be overwhelmingly Asian American. You know, this to me strikes me as just wrongheaded. I mean, first of all, the whole support for affirmative action and racial preferences and admissions over the years has been predicated on the idea that Black and, to a less extent, Brown students have been discriminated against in the past. Certainly, Black students were. But so were Asians. Asians had a horrible history of discrimination in the United States. They were excluded from the country. They weren't allowed even to come here. Even if they were living here, they weren't allowed to become citizens. So I think that uh, this case is an extremely important one. I think that it is coupled with another case involving the University of North Carolina. And I am hoping that Sandra Day O'Connor's words meant what they said, which was that we might have needed these kinds of special programs for a certain number of years, but at the end of the day, they've got to go away. And I think they have to go away and they have to go away now. Steve Laddick, first of all, thank you so much for joining us. Of course, that's happening. A lot of people criticize affirmative action on the grounds that it's really a matter of window dressing, that the black and brown students who attend elite schools are actually already middle class or even upper class in many instances, that we're not actually helping you know, the poor or people who are discriminated against. So is it really living up to its hopes, that is to to provide opportunities for people who otherwise wouldn't have them? Or is it simply giving advantages to the already advantaged? Well, I mean, I think the first thing to say is that having this conversation through the exclusive lens of Harvard University is rather a one-sided way of looking at the problem of racial diversity in our, you know, graduate and collegiate campuses. I mean, I teach at the University of Texas, a public school that has had its you know, programs challenged over the years, but that has had enormous trouble building a diverse student body along almost any axis without at least some additional considerations of so-called plus factors. So you know, I think the first thing to say is that you know, if this conversation is just about whether Harvard should have affirmative action, I think we might answer that differently than whether every single public university and private university receiving federal money should be allowed to. The second piece, and I think this is maybe where Linda and I have a little bit of daylight between us, you know, one of the shifts in the Supreme Court's jurisprudence with respect to affirmative action was away from the proposition that what justified these kinds of racial preferences was the amelioration of prior discrimination and toward a different concept that, in general, the attainment of a diverse student body, whatever that means, is a compelling interest that states are allowed to adopt on behalf of their universities and that the universities are allowed to go out and implement. 
And so I think if the question is, are we ameliorating prior discrimination? I think some of the concerns Linda raises are prescient and poignant. I think if the question is, who's in a better position to decide how private and public universities should be able to diversify their student bodies, those entities themselves or the federal courts, you know, color me as one who thinks it should be left up to the schools. And, you know, so is it possible that Harvard's policies in the aggregate end up discriminating against Asian Americans? I certainly think it's possible. Is that a reason why, therefore, at a nationwide level, we should bar every single academic institution receiving federal financial funds from adopting any kind of racial preference in its admissions program? You know, there's a gap there to me, Mona, that I don't think we've adequately bridged in this conversation. So I'm going to ask Bill Galston to address that because some people think that it is important to give plus factors, but they just uh, sort of bridle at the idea that the plus factor should be a racial one. They say, absolutely, give extra bonus points to a student who comes from a difficult background, who's overcome poverty or, or you know, other things, but don't make it racial. What do you think about that argument? I think it, it's a pretty good argument up to a point, but I am intensely cross-pressured on this issue. On this issue, I am Robert Frost's liberal, you know, someone who can't take his own side in the argument. And I say that because I see this issue through the prism of the Jewish experience a century ago, where similar arguments were made against, quote-unquote, excessive Jewish concentrations in elite schools, now being made against the, quote-unquote, excessive concentration of Asians, you know, who are alleged to be grinds, good test takers, but somehow lacking the traits of character that befit them for positions of leadership in American society. I have seen this movie before. I didn't like it the first time, and I don't like it the second time. On the other hand, what we know, for example, from the experience of Berkeley and other top-tier University of California institutions after the abolition of affirmative action in the state of California you know, is that the immediate result was a deep plunge in the share of African-American and Latino students in the top tier uh, universities of the state. Is that acceptable? That is, in part, I would say, a political question. Is diversity a compelling state interest? Well, we could disagree on that question. I happen to think that it is better for students to grow up, whether they're in K-12 or in college, in places where they meet people who are unlike themselves, unlike in background and experience and opinion. Specifically, I am not sure that a pure poverty standard would capture the full diversity of America's racial and ethnic history. On the other hand, am I willing to say that diversity is so compelling a standard that kids who have worked their tails off for 17 years to qualify as the children of immigrants 
for positions of leadership in American society? Is the diversity rationale compelling when faced with that consequence? I'm not sure. I'm honestly not sure. But what I do know is that adopting a strictly consequentialist stance, namely society will be better off if we admit people on the basis of diversity rather than the basis of earned merit, commits an injustice in order to secure a good. And that is a deep moral quandary. It sure is, Bill Crystal, And it leads to other problems like resentment from other groups who feel that this advantage is being given unjustly to people based purely on a on skin color, which shouldn't matter. And then there's the problem of stigma. A lot of black students say that, you know, they, they feel it acutely, that they are assumed to be less qualified just because of their race, because there is this practice of affirmative action. So that too makes this a very, very fraught solution to a serious societal problem. Where do you come down? I think I was once more certain than I am now that uh, sort of all racial preferences and ethnic preferences, I suppose, too, should be discarded or, or ruled out of bounds, either by the institution itself or at the state level or maybe at the national level, or maybe at the national congressional level or as a, maybe at the court level. One problem, I mean, one can imagine this being worked out in different ways and a good faith way in different institutions and locally and at the state level, maybe a bit at the national level, a couple of things ruled out of bounds. Uh, we don't really have that kind of functioning political and social system now, I would say. Things tend to end up in the courts. They tend to end up now in the Supreme Court. They tend to end up being resolved on constitutional grounds, not even on statutory grounds, where there might be a case for doing this. There tends to be an obliteration of the public-private distinction, too, because you know some public money is going to every college and university, basically. I don't know, honestly, and I haven't studied the actual sort of constitutional law of this. I, I imagine the, the court will go in a, its version of an originalist direction and and sort of take Justice Harlan's line that in 1896, which I've always admired, and a wonderful dissent, and Plessy, that, you know, uh, the Constitution should be colorblind, should not know distinctions of color. I mean, as Justice Jackson pointed out just was it this Tuesday, I think, uh, in the actual argument on the voting rights case, it's not clear that's exactly the strictly originalist understanding of the 14th Amendment. The effects of this decision, combined with the voting rights decision, combined obviously with Roe last year, Brings home to me a point that Will Bode, the Chicago law professor, made to me in a conversation we have up online. The notion that a lot of us sort of civilians had was, well, Roe, that was unbelievable, a huge moment, better or worse, 49 years, precedent always struck down, five to four, three recent just justices making the majority. You know, that's, oof, boy, that only happens once every, in a long time. And uh, that's why it's having such a big impact. But it turns out this year's term, the 22-23 term, could be almost as uh, disruptive and controversial and with its own, I think, unanticipated political consequences. The Supreme Court is going to be at the middle of our political debates for a while now, and I, it's hard to believe that's going to really be a healthy thing given our extremely polarized politics. Yeah, well said. Linda, you wanted to make another point. 
Yeah. In terms of the point about diversity being what drives affirmative action programs, that is certainly true since 1978 and the Bakke decision, which I thought even at the time when I was working at the Liberal American Federation of Teachers was a very bad decision. And I think diversity as a compelling state interest uh, leaves a lot to be desired. But the other thing I wanted to point out, and this is in response to Bill, Bill is absolutely right that when they abandoned, as a result of an initiative passed by the state of California, racial preference uh, in admissions in the University of California system, there was a drop in the number of black and brown students attending Berkeley and UCLA. But what happened was those students who were not admitted preferentially to those two flagship schools ended up in the University of California system at other schools. It's schools where their grades and test scores allowed them to be able to compete on an equal footing. And as a result, those students actually ended up graduating. And one of the things that we found at the CEO over the the years when we've done our studies is that if you look six years out at graduation rates for students admitted under preferential programs, the figures are appalling. Students don't stay in and they don't graduate because, in fact, they are mismatched. And there is an excellent book by one of my colleagues, Stuart Taylor, who wrote it in conjunction with Richard Sander, a professor from UCLA, that talks about the way in which these kinds of preferential admissions don't just hurt the whites and Asian students who uh, are not admitted because of the preferences. They also hurt the intended beneficiaries who tend to do worse in school, get lower grades, and not graduate when they attend schools where they have been mismatched in terms of their preparation. And there are other ways of doing this. Bill mentioned that you could use uh, income, which is not a perfect measure. You could also use something like first in your family to attend college, giving some preference on that basis. Or you could do what Texas did, which is to say that if you graduate in the top 10% of your graduating high school class, you are entitled to attend the University of Texas system. So there are other ways to try to get diversity without resorting to using race as a proxy. Okay, this is obviously a huge topic and could swallow up the whole hour, but I just want to touch on some of the other major cases that are coming up. As Bill Crystal mentioned, the Alabama redistricting case was just argued. I'm going to ask Steve Vladek whether he has thoughts on that case and anything else that you think is incredibly important this term. Sure. I mean, I'll, I'll just say really briefly, I do think, I mean, the mismatch thesis has been heavily criticized by others. So if you're going to read that, you should read the criticisms as well. I would actually include, Mona, the Indian Child Welfare Act cases as well, because, you know, one of the things about the last term with abortion and guns and religion is there was no race. And it's not just the affirmative action cases this term that have the Supreme Court in the middle of a national racial debate. The redistricting cases in Alabama um, are basically about the centerpiece of the Voting Rights Act, Section 2, and whether Congress has the ability to require states to draw so-called majority-minority districts, that is to say, to have districts that are somehow reflective of the diverse breakdown of the state. Alabama, about 28% of its population is Black. Black Alabamians live in compact areas, which under the Supreme Court's precedence mean they are entitled to representative proportional apportionment in Congress. 
And Alabama drew a map that actually only has one district that would cover the black population. A three-judge district court with two Trump appointees said that this violates the Voting Rights Act. The Supreme Court blocked that decision with no explanation, allowing Alabama to use unlawful maps. Steve, can I interrupt just to ask a clarifying question for me? Please. The, the state of Alabama is arguing that if they had created a second majority black district, that it would violate the Constitution's 14th Amendment and 15th Amendment because it would have required them to take race into account and to draw a specifically racial district. But does the Voting Rights Act demand that? I'm a little confused about that. So, I mean, the Voting Rights Act, as it has been interpreted by the Supreme Court in a series of cases, most prominently a 1986 case called Jingles, does in fact require legislatures to take into account the sort of packing of districts, the representativeness of minority populations in a state, including racial minorities, for the purpose, Mona, of preventing discrimination on the basis of race. So the argument is that mm -hmm. right, what Alabama is proposing is not neutral. The, the map Alabama proposed, according to the district court, discriminated against black Alabamians by only having one seat in the congressional delegation that would represent out of seven, right, that would represent a population that was more than two sevenths of the state population. So, you know, here, unlike, unlike in the affirmative action cases, where we have moved away from the argument that the racial preferences are a response to racial discrimination, here, there's a direct connection. Here, the argument is that Alabama is required to draw a second majority minority district because to not draw that district is to discriminate on the basis of race as the Voting Rights Act has defined that. And I just want to say it really quickly, I mean, I don't, I don't mean to, to, to say too much. What is remarkable about this case is not just that it really brings to full froth Right, the whether the centerpiece of the civil rights movement, the Voting Rights Act, is itself unconstitutional by creating these race-infused rules. But it also, I think, really drives home how much the Supreme Court has injected itself into the midterms. Because based on the February emergency ruling on the shadow docket in the Alabama case, a ruling in June in a Louisiana case, and how lower courts have interpreted those rulings, Mona, there are as many as 10 House seats that are going to be safe Republican seats in the midterms that had these lower court rulings not been affected or blocked by the Supreme Court would almost certainly have been safe Democratic seats. I think it reinforces both how much race is hanging over this entire Supreme Court term and how invested the court has become, for better or for worse, really in what may be who controls the House come January of 2023? Okay. I'm also very interested in this web designer case where this uh, web designer does not want to do gay wedding websites. She says she, of course, will serve gay clients if they want her for some other purpose, but she doesn't believe in gay marriage because of her religion. And she says that this is unconstitutional to ask her as Colorado's law does, to perform this service. So really briefly, isn't this like, isn't, and tell me if it's not, but isn't this like the government trying to force students to say the Pledge of Allegiance against their consciences if they're Jehovah's Witnesses, the famous case from 1943? Yes and no. I mean, the difference between these cases and the Pledge of Allegiance cases is that here you have a conflict because here you have states that say, if you want to do business in our state as a condition of doing business, we are going to prevent you from discriminating 
against particular people and particular types of groups, state public accommodations laws, state human rights laws. They vary, of course, from state to state. But here the problem is not just uh, the government compelling us to speak. Here, the individual in question, the website designer, has chosen to run a business, has made a deal with the state where she has said, I will operate, you know, if you let me operate a business in your state, if you license me to do business, I agree to comply with your regulations. And so the question really is whether it is so radical to believe that states are allowed to include among those regulations grounds for non-discrimination, including discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, especially whereas here, right, the claim is not, at least before the Supreme Court, that the state public accommodations law is infringing upon her religious freedom, right? Especially where it's simply a question of whether, as a condition of doing business, I agree to speak. Just to give you a really stupid example, right? If I, as a restaurant owner, am forced to put a placard in the window of my restaurant that says I got a B on my health inspection, I don't think we would be arguing that that the city lacks the ability to require me, the restaurant owner, to speak in a way that's inconsistent with what I think my business practices are. And so the question is, if we take religion out of this case, as the Supreme Court has, why is this different? Bill Galston, you want to comment on this? I'm not a lawyer, let alone a law professor. But it does strike me that the parallels may be a little bit closer than Steve indicated, because if I recall the Jehovah's Witnesses case correctly, a condition of remaining in public school was reciting the pledge. They weren't just being sent to detention if they didn't. If you didn't recite the pledge, you could be expelled from public school. Now, if I have the facts right, we seem to be involved in conditionality in both of these cases. And I do think, by the way, that it won't be possible to take religion out of this case, any more than it was possible to take religion out of the Jehovah's Witnesses case. So I'm not saying, you know, that the Supreme Court decision in Jehovah's Witnesses necessarily controls the outcome of this case, but I do think that there are some significant jurisprudential parallels. This is a true case of rights being in conflict. It really is, because her right to express herself as she wishes is in conflict with the right of others to public accommodations and to be respected and so on. So it's um, it's a tough one. All right, let's turn, though, to one that might have huge impacts for 2024, and that is the case of the independent state legislature theory. And I remember in particular that Damon Linker, I think perhaps in his um, low light of the week one week, was expressing dismay that the Supreme Court had even granted cert on this doctrine, which until fairly recently, as I understand it, was considered really kind of out there. So, Bill Crystal, I'm going to start with you about your, your impressions on this. So, Article 1, Section 4 of the Constitution says... The time, place, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. And some people are now saying that means only the legislature, not the governor, not the state Supreme Court. And that's what this case is about. Yeah, and not even if there's a state constitution that the legislature operates under that gives certain roles to governors and the Supreme Court and et cetera. So, and, and, 
legislature uh, under the extreme version of this can still be even after the election, but certainly before just decide to ignore the popular vote, even though all 50 states have passed laws saying this, the electoral vote should follow the popular vote in that state. So it would be pretty extreme to go all the way. I guess a lot of people think there's sort of in-between grounds where the court could find that the North Carolina Supreme Court overreached some in striking down the North Carolina legislature apportionment, but you know, it doesn't mean that the legislatures have a total blank check to do things sort of after the fact and arbitrarily overturn election results. So, but that'll be a much watch case. Will they, will there be a, a sort of in-between resolution, a kind of Justice Roberts, what Roberts tried to do in Roe, maybe he'll do in this case. Maybe they'll simply not go with the doctrine and, you know, five, four, six, three, it seems like they're pretty certainly two or three votes for it. So, this is a much bigger topic, but the degree to which people like me who were basically very friendly to originalism when it was first articulated, what, like almost 40 years ago, really, is a, mostly as a correction to a kind of progressive view of a living constitution and, and the Warren Court and the Warren Court's after effects. Originalism has now become, in a way, a kind of uh, almost as arbitrary as the living constitution was, as progressivism was, as Alex Bickle explained way back in my youth. And so I, I think that will be, it'll be an interesting debate about constitutional interpretation that can also come out of this. But the practical meaning of it is that, again, in a very important election denial issue, which also has racial, as Steve said, uh, more than racial connotations, it comes out of a sort of a racially contested redistricting case. But in an election denying sort of uh, case with election denying implications, the court's going to be right in the middle of that. So again, those who thought, well, the court kind of popped up there in row, but back to back to sort of a quiet time, not going to happen this year. Yeah. Steve, the second half of that sentence that I quoted earlier from Article One says, but the Congress may at any time by law make or alter such regulations. And also the Congress has the power, the federal Congress has the power to determine the when of when elections are held, not the how. So the state legislatures decide the how and the Congress decides the when. So Andy Craig at Cato had a piece about this and he said, no matter what the court rules in more, that's the case we're discussing today, it will remain unlawful and unconstitutional for state legislatures to overturn presidential election results after the fact. Does that give you any comfort, Steve Vladek? <laughs> no, because I'm not sure it's true. Um, okay. I mean, right, we've been talking about Article 1, Section 4, but the, there's a very similar reference to state legislatures in that part of Article 2 that talks about the selection of presidential electors. I certainly believe and hope that there is an implicit requirement in Article 2 that the legislature's provision for the selection of electors is only forward-looking, and that once, say, the Texas legislature has appointed Election Day and a general election as the mechanism for choosing electors, it can't change its mind after the fact. But Mona, there's nothing in the text of Article 2 of the Constitution that says that. And, you know, I would think that the principal constraint on that kind of remarkable assertion of power by a state legislature would be the state constitution and the notion that it might violate the state constitution for the legislature to so effectively disenfranchise its entire populace. This is why this is such a big case, because if you go all the way to the end of the argument that the reference to legislature is to the exclusion of every other state actor, then I don't know how we can be confident that anything other than politics would limit a legislature in that context. And, and just to sort of tie this back to the originalism part of the conversation, and I can't fathom how the founders who were wary of too much federal power 
would have not just ratified a constitution that basically rewrote every single state constitution on the question of who had the primary say when it came to election laws, but that no one would have noticed and no one would have complained. And so I think that's part of why this case is so complicated for you know, those who are ideologically committed to that brand of originalism. Yeah, Linda, that, that's such a good point. I mean, one of the most heated sources of debate when the Constitution was being considered initially was how much of their own authority the states would have to give up in order to become part of this union. And, you know, as we know, the Articles of Confederation were too weak and and they hadn't required the states to uh, surrender enough. But that was still a live issue back then. And people, you know, lots of anti-Constitution people you would have thought would have raised it, but nobody did. Uh, well, right. But when has that stopped <laughs> uh, partisans from, you know, making whatever argument they uh, see fit? We're a podcast, so you can't see a picture, but a picture is worth a thousand words. And there is a picture on Ballotpedia that describes everything we need to know about this issue. And that is a picture of the United States showing Republicans in control of 30 chambers of state legislatures. And that is as of the last election. And if you look at the states, there are some blue states, but uh, many more that are red. And those red states are not just in familiar red territory. You know, we expect it in places like Texas and Florida, Arizona as well. But they're also in battleground states. And that is the problem. You've got Republicans in control of legislatures in states that are the only true battleground uh, for presidential elections where the outcome is not pretty much predetermined before people even go to the polls. And I think that's the problem. And what is happening here is, is Republicans see this as their way to cause mischief in 2024, as they tried to do in 2020. And of course, uh, John Eastman and his whole legal theory of, you know, whose um, votes were going to be counted and whether state legislatures could basically intervene and and override the will of the people was all based on this notion that Republicans controlled these state houses. It's scary. I think, you know, democracy could hang in the balance on this. And I hope that the independent state legislature's theory, which at least three of the justices uh, on the court now have expressed some interest in, obviously all of them, the conservative justices, if they embrace that and they embrace these very expansive powers for state legislatures, it could be the uh, a total transformation of the democracy that we've known for the last 200 years. Bill Galston, this would be the biggest issue in states that have Republican-controlled legislatures and Democratic governors or Democratic-leaning Supreme Courts. That would also mean, if the court goes pretty far in ratifying this theory, then um, there would be no check on the power of those legislatures, for example, to gerrymander like crazy. And so that could have you know, effects into the future. It's easy to imagine a parade of horribles. I have to say, for various reasons, I cannot bring myself to believe that the Supreme Court is going to go very far down this road. And if I'm wrong then the gate is open to all manner of mischief. But 
the abortion case, whether you like it or not, you know, the Dobbs decision had been preceded by decades of argument. Everybody pretty much knew where the battle lines were, not only politically, but jurisprudentially, etc. This case is, to sound like the lawyer that I'm not, is a matter of first impression for the Supreme Court. And to make a radical decision with so little preparation, either of the American public or of itself, to do so, I think would be a sign that the court has really lurched beyond an ordinary understanding of its institutional boundaries. I don't think that's going to happen. I also think, you know, going to one of Steve's points, that the language of, you know, both the Article One and Article Two can easily be interpreted without doing any violence to the text as being forward-looking rather than backward-looking. You know, you prescribe a, you know, a time, place, and manner for an election or for the selection of electors, and the idea that then you can just double back and say, well, no, I didn't mean that, and this is what we mean, and we understand that the election has already taken place, you know, but we can change anyway. I mean, that is so far from the rule of law as understood by almost everybody as to be unthinkable. But let me tell you what is thinkable. I think that it is permissible under a reasonable interpretation of these clauses that, for example, a state legislature could decide that it, the state legislature, would determine the slate of electors to be sent to Congress. And if it does so in advance, then it's not clear to me on what constitutional grounds that would be defeated. Now, you may say that politically that's wildly unpopular, but I'm just thinking constitutionally and rather not politically. Uh, that, I think, would be consistent with the language of the Constitution. Right. So let's, let, me, let me turn to Steve on that. Yeah, the, the fact is the legislatures were free to say, and I guess still maintain the authority to say, you know, we're going to pick our electors via lottery. That's how we're going to do it. And it's going to take place on November 3rd every year, whatever. They could do that, but changing it retroactively does seem like a bridge too far. What do you say, Steve? I, I think the problem is the difference between the text of Article 1 and the text of Article 2. So I'm I'm with Bill on Article 1, that setting the time, place, and manner of elections is something that states must do in advance. And that's Article 1. Article 2, though, says each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors. Well, the appointment of electors does not happen on election day. The appointment of electors happens when the electoral college meets and the X number of electors from whoever was certified as the victor of that state cast their vote. And so, you know, I don't like this interpretation, but I don't know how you can look at Article 2 and say it is clear that- well, wait, the- I have a question. Yeah. All 50 states, as I understand it, have passed laws saying that the electors shall be chosen based on the popular vote in their state, right? Yes. So, so clarify that. So imagine we actually had a state where we all agree that there was some crazy problem in the voting and that the result was just gobbledygook. 
And so the state had to come up with some alternative method between election day and the electoral college voting day. So 41 days after election day, right, for appointing electors. I don't think Article 2 prevents a state from providing an alternative mechanism for appointing electors just because we're in the 41 days between election day and the electoral college voting day. You know, you guys are surely right that politics probably would, but I just think it's important to stress part of why this theory has such potentially onerous implications because I don't think the text of Article 2 is the safety valve that we might want it to be to prevent a state from using that period to, you know, defy the interests and the preferences of their voters. Let us look now at one particular race because it's been very much in the news, and that is Herschel Walker running for Senate in the state of Georgia. This was Donald Trump's idea that uh, this guy would be a great candidate. From the very beginning, there were problems with his candidacy. Now, this week, it turns out that he, well, he is accused of having paid for an abortion. His position on abortion is absolutist, no exceptions. And uh, the Daily Beast uh, published receipts showing that uh, there was a woman who said he paid for her abortion, former girlfriend. He denied it. And all, I'm going to go to you first, Bill Crystal. the Republicans all rallied around. They said they're just trying to attack him because he's a black conservative and he's still our guy. And hey, nobody's perfect. Have we now entered the realm of completely post-truth politics where it really just doesn't matter? Well, I think we've entered the realm where certainly character doesn't matter at all. I think we entered that realm on October 5th, whatever that was in 2016, when after 36 hours of wavering, Republicans decided the access Hollywood tape didn't matter. And as long as Trump had signed the pledge to appoint federal society judges, which meant basically ones who would vote to overturn Roe, all was well. And the pro-life movement, the social conservative movement, the respect women movement, and so forth, different parts of the Republican social conservative base. So we're still there. And it turns out this is transferable. It's not just Trump doesn't just get a pass. Herschel Walker gets a pass. And God knows we've seen a million other people get passes, Matt Gates and at all. And so, uh, yeah, it's all about power. And now the fancy justification of that is, well, going forward, Herschel Walker will vote, quote, right on legislation in a way that uh, Senator Warnock wouldn't. But at that point, you really are just saying in, in practice that anything goes, any means justifies the end of Republican control of the Senate, which I think slides in, if I can back to our previous discussion, it is the way in which a state legislature could justify and be supported by more voters than one would like to think and and even excused by more uh, sort of thought, to, you know, conservative uh, elite types than one would like to think for doing a version of this in, in 2024. So I mean, the power above all, because we are in a culture war that has to be won no matter the deficiencies of the individuals fighting on our side. I mean, that is the current stance of the Republican Party. Linda, Christian Walker has had his moment in the sun this week. So this is now a family drama as well, where he is a, I guess, Instagram and TikTok influencer and so forth, and actually has been very Trumpy and very conservative in quotation marks. But he came out this week and just lambasted Herschel Walker for lying and for mistreating 
Christian's mother and Christian himself, and it's quite the uh, soap opera. It is indeed. You know, we already found out in the course of the election that Christian Walker is not the only son of Herschel Walker. And by the way, Herschel Walker is not married to Christian's mother, uh, nor to the other three women by whom he had children. We know of at least four children by four different women. And one of the- That's true. He was married to Christian's mother at one time. They're divorced. Uh, Sorry. Uh, But he has uh, all of these children out of wedlock. He claims not to know the woman who he apparently impregnated in 2009 and for whom he paid for an abortion. But it turns out uh, today that the woman has come forward and said, well, not only does he know her, but she's the mother of one of those children. So it's the the field of possible candidates is narrowing down to one of the uh, baby mamas that Herschel Walker um, has had relationships with. Look, this is, it would be sad if it were not so dangerous, because I think Herschel Walker himself is a disturbed not very impressive guy. I mean, I don't know. His football career may have been terrific, but he has not done very well for himself subsequently. His businesses have failed. Uh, He did not graduate from college, though he claimed to, he not only claimed to graduate, but I think he claimed to be like, you know, in the top uh, 1% or whatever of the class. You know, the way in which this man is being exploited and the fact that he is a black man. I mean, I don't think we can take that out of the equation. The Republican Party is always looking for its black hero. It's always looking for someone they can elevate into a position of prominence and that it will then be touted that, you know, the party is not in any way racist, that there's no discrimination within the Republican Party or among Republicans generally. And Herschel Walker has allowed himself to be used in that way. And it's all very embarrassing. You almost wish that Herschel Walker would realize that the best thing for him would be to walk away. But, you know, the race is very tight. The polls don't know whether or not we can rely on them. Uh, They had closed to to being quite uh, close with Warnock, you know, possibly beating Walker. But who knows? I mean, this could be a big red wave. We haven't even talked about it, but the price of gas and OPEC uh, and its decision to cut Mm -hmm. production is going to help the Republicans in the election. So Herschel Walker is thinking to himself, you know, I could be United States Senator. And so he's hanging in there. Uh, Steve Laddick, after Walker appeared on Sean Hannity's show on Monday night, denying everything. And, you know, he really did give a hostage to fortune by saying he didn't know this woman, had no idea who it could possibly be, because then she came out and said, well, you do know me because I'm the mother of one of your children. But anyway, he denied everything. And guess what? After that appearance, his contributions skyrocketed and he raised, you know, half a million dollars just on that that one TV appearance. So we are locked in a doom loop of, you know, people choosing the reality that they like. Yeah. I mean, I think Mona, the the question we should all be asking ourselves, and I'll admit, I, I spent some time asking myself this question over the last few days, is what would it take for you to vote for the party you don't support in a case like this? And, you know, I think what, where I really start to get worried about what this portends for the future is, you know, it's not just that Walker is the unfortunate character Linda has described him to be. 
it's that this is specifically about abortion, which is supposed to be the red line issue for the Republican Party. And so, you know, if these are the same folks who think abortion is murder, they are literally saying out loud that they would rather vote for someone who paid for a murder than a Democrat. And I just, you know, Mona, what scares me about that is like, if that's true, then where is the line? Because my sense of the, I'm an amateur historian to be sure, but my sense of the history of the rise of authoritarian regimes is one of the things that happens is that, you know, power becomes the dominant organizing principle where holding on to power becomes an end unto itself and where people rationalize decisions you know, today it's voting for someone who, under my belief system, paid someone else to commit a murder. Tomorrow, it's maybe even even worse abuse in the interest of holding on to power. And I just, you know, I don't know how we get out of that other than people saying to themselves, you know, some things are more important than party. And our politics at the moment just are not supportive of that principle. So, Bill Galston, I can hear the Republicans objecting that, you know, this is there's a history here and that they will do the whataboutism and they'll say, you know what, there were a lot of feminists who were willing to support Bill Clinton, despite the fact that he abused women quite badly and uh, was accused of, of even worse than he was than was ever proved. But anyway, what we knew for sure was pretty bad. And yet they said, well, because he has the right political positions, we're going to support him anyway. How would you respond to that objection? Well, I could be glib and say the two wrongs don't make a right. No, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> I do think that some of what you just described was at work. I know it's at work this time around because I've been monitoring the statements of many Christian evangelical leaders. And one of them explicitly made the argument, I don't have the reference right at hand, to the effect that yes, you know, by their standards, he might be a murderer. But what we know for sure is that he will vote in the Senate to prevent lots and lots and lots of murders. And so is it better to vote for someone who isn't personally a murderer but will authorize you know, on a societal basis the, uh, the commission of the deed or the other way around? So this kind of evangelical rail politique, you know, which you saw evidence of in 2016, is now, you know, if I can switch from German to French, the lingua franca of political evangelical <laughs> leaders – I'll, I'll say one other thing. I cannot believe that the people of Georgia will send Herschel Walker to the United States oh, Senate. Bill, you are tempting the evil eye. Oh, I know, <laughs> Mona. I, I know that. I guess. I guess this is this is my show to say I can't believe X. <laughs> X is just too horrible to believe because I have to believe. Even if the majority of Republicans in Georgia will give him a pass no matter what and will respond to Steve's point by saying, you're right, given the current state of affairs in the country, there is nothing 
that could get us to vote for a Democrat. But I have to believe that 5 to 10 percent of the population and 5 percent of, of Republicans are not prepared to go that far. And that is all that it will take. And if I'm wrong about this, I'm just putting a big marker out there, then I'm wrong about just about everything else. And, you know, the barely floating log of hope that I've been clutching desperately will turn out to be balsa wood and sink along with me. If the Republicans of Alabama couldn't bring themselves to vote for Roy Moore, maybe the Republicans, that is a significant minority of them, Bill, uh, enough of them, then maybe a significant minority of the Republicans in Georgia will feel the same. By the way, just to close this out, I mean... (laughs) The, this story is is particularly embarrassing and and lurid, but the fact is, you know, there has been evidence that has come out before this that he held a gun to his ex wife's head and threatened to blow her brains out. There are allegations of domestic violence against other women, and he told a story himself about chasing down somebody in a car with the intent to kill him. And only pulled back when he saw that the man had a bumper sticker that said, you know, Jesus saves. Wow. Now, maybe some evangelical Christians hear that story and think that's a really inspiring tale. But a lot of people are here that hear that and think this man has some serious mental instability and, and doesn't belong anywhere near the United States Senate. But we shall see. Bill, uh, from your lips to God's ears, we will see. Well, that's more hopeful than the evil eye that you invoked a few minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I said you were tempting it. Uh, I wasn't calling it down upon you. All right. Let us turn to our highlight or low light of the week. Linda Chavez. Uh, well, I'm going to go for a low light of the week, and it was a decision that was handed down uh, just last night by the Fifth uh, Circuit Court of Appeals, basically sending back to the lower district court a decision having to do with the fate of 600,000 DACA recipients. You know, DACA was promulgated by the Obama administration through what I think was a very sloppily organized effort. It was done through a memorandum of understanding that was issued by the Department of Homeland Security, giving not just the right of children who had been brought here illegally to the United States by their parents when they were still children, not just giving them uh, the right not to be deported uh, because they had done nothing themselves to deserve that, but also gave them access to the ability to get jobs and other kinds of benefits that, frankly, are prohibited in federal law. And so it was badly done during the Obama years. And uh, this administration has now issued actual regulations trying to codify the DACA program. And what the court has done in the Fifth Circuit is to send back the case involving these DACA recipients and ask the court to judge it in light of the new uh, administration regulations. I think there's a very low likelihood that Judge Hannon, the district court judge in the case of origin, is, uh, is going to give protection to the DACA recipients. And therefore, once again, this is thrown to the United States Congress. If this does not promote a 
real consideration of passing legislation to give protections to these kids, then America is not the America that I have known and loved all my life. Because these kids are 600,000 of them who are contributing members of society. They will lose their status and be unable to you know, do all the things that other people in our society do, including work and pay taxes. So this is a real challenge to Congress, and I don't know that Congress is up to it. They certainly haven't been up to it to date. Okay, thank you. Steve Vladek. I guess this is also a lowlight in the, in the spirit of Linda's, um, is the remarkable filing by former President Trump's lawyers asking the Supreme Court to step back into the middle of the Mar-a-Lago case and it's remarkable because of how remarkably modest it is. The basic argument is not that the 11th Circuit was wrong when it stayed Judge Cannon's injunction, when it allowed the Justice Department to continue to look at the classified materials seized from Mar-a-Lago when it was searched by the FBI back in August. The basic argument is that the 11th Circuit lacked something called pendant appellate jurisdiction to issue the rest of its order which in at least some respect keeps those classified documents away from Special Master Judge Deary. What is so remarkable about this filing is that it is asking for incredibly little, and it doesn't even argue, let alone prove, that President Trump is suffering from the kind of irreparable harm that is necessary to get any appeals court, let alone the Supreme Court of the United States, to issue the kind of emergency relief it's seeking. It is the kind of thing that smart lawyers file when they have a client who's yelling at them to file something and they care about the rules of ethics. <laughs> um, but it's not exactly advancing any material benefit when the headlines read Trump asking the Supreme Court to step in when all he's asking them to do is basically rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic. So low light from the perspective of what it's asking, low light from the perspective of how cynical we become about the Supreme Court that it might even grant it, um, and low light just for reminding us of how much mischief Judge Cannon's rulings have already caused. A uh, quick prediction, you know, on a scale of one to 10, 10 being most likely, what what do you think the likelihood is that the court will do anything but dismiss it? Uh, zero. Zero. Okay. Thank you for that. Okay. Bill Crystal. Well, I'm, I'm obviously a low light guy, so I'll stick with the, the low lights, which is appropriate, I believe. You know, you, Mona, you mentioned um, Roy Moore. So it's an interesting comparison. He he did get the votes of the overwhelming majority of Republicans in Alabama, but enough voted against him for Doug Jones, and enough stayed home and and didn't vote for him. Wrote in there were a lot of there were write ins. There were a couple of third party candidates and so forth. Uh, Senator Shelby, the Republican senator from Alabama, said he couldn't vote for Roy Moore and he was going to write in someone. He didn't want to vote for a Democrat. But one forgets. So for me, the big story is less Moore and Walker and more the reaction of the parties in 2017. Mitch McConnell said Moore should withdraw from the race. Paul Ryan said that. There were, I believe the Republican committees, the NRSC and the RNC didn't help Moore. He was an outcast within the party, which is one reason why enough Republicans stayed home or didn't vote for him, that he lost even in Alabama. It's the opposite this time, right? They're all on board. Uh, Mitch McConnell's guy, Steve Law, there at the Republican, the huge Republican super PAC for Senate races. Is all, they're all in. Not a single Republican that I know of has said, just volunteered a statement, a Republican elected, a senior Republican elected official, that, gee, you know, this is kind of a problem. And maybe don't vote for a Democrat if you can't do that, but just 
stay home. So I think it does show something of the uh, degeneracy of the Republican Party between 2017 and 22, not so much more in Walker's individual circumstances, but much more the reaction to a Republican Senate candidate in uh, five years ago compared to today. Yeah, really good point, Bill. Okay, Bill Galston. Well, you're continuing the hopeless liberal motif. Uh, I have both a highlight and a lowlight. My highlight, what propels it into that category is schadenfreude as much as anything else. My highlight is Ukraine's capture of Liman exactly 24 hours after Vladimir Putin claimed to annex it. This was one of the clearest instances of divine justice acting with more celerity than usual that I think I've ever seen. My low light, and this is a no-brainer, is Donald J. Trump's incontestably racist attack on Mitch McConnell's wife, Elaine Chow. Every time I think he's hit bottom, he crashes through that floor and reveals that there is another floor beneath the cellar or sub-cellar or sub-sub-cellar that he was previously occupying. It takes my breath away that this man was president of the United States and may well again be president of the United States, at which point I have to say I will have to consider my options. Yeah, it is just, um, it is mind-boggling that we have come to this. I have a highlight, and it's a piece written by Elliot Cohn, previously a guest on this podcast. I hope to have him back sometime soon. He wrote in The Atlantic, Russia's nuclear bluster is a sign of panic. There's been a lot of talk about Putin's nuclear threats, and I regret to say that in several precincts of the right, on the Tucker Carlson show and other places on Fox, you find complete appeasement of the Russians and fear prompting them to say, if he threatens nuclear weapons, we have no choice but to uh, succumb. And uh, this is such an inversion of the conservative identity. I just cannot get over it. I wrote a book called Useful Idiots, published in 2004, where I talked about how Democrats had been so um, pusillanimous when it came to standing up to Soviet communism. And uh, now the, the right is even more pusillanimous in its treatment of Putin. But anyway... Elliot Cohn is a wonderful commentator, teaches at, at the School of Advanced International Studies, Johns Hopkins, and author and former government official. And he says, of course, that any threat to use nuclear weapons by a country that has them is, of course, to be taken seriously. And Russia, that's particularly true of Russia, and he gives the reasons. But he says, if we give in now, and anyone with nuclear weapons will learn that the secret to success in a negotiation is to froth at the mouth, roll up one's eyes, and threaten a mushroom cloud. To yield to Putin would be, as Churchill said, in a different but not entirely dissimilar context, to take but the first sip from a bitter cup. And then he goes on to explain what we should do instead, that includes a lot of credible threats, including the fact that if Russia were to use nuclear weapons, they would very shortly see a nuclear-armed Poland, Turkey, Kazakhstan, and perhaps Finland, which would not make Russia more secure or more comfortable. So um, it's a very worthwhile piece and a little bit of cold water on the people who are so eager to appease 
this bloodthirsty aggressor. So with that, I want to thank uh, Steve Vladek for joining us and Bill Crystal for sitting in. I also want to thank our producer, Katie Cooper, and our sound engineer, Joe Armstrong. Our editor today will be Jason Brown. And we want to thank our listeners, and we will return next week as every week.